the SHSS podcast. Let's talk learning. Today we welcome Tim Crowley from the Michael Collins Centre in Castleview. Welcome, Tim. Thank you for having me. Do you tell us a little about yourself? Well, uh, I come from a, a little townland called Castleview between Clonakilty and Timaleague. I'm a retired farmer, but I'm a historian by nature. And uh, I, I suppose uh, I have to say that I'm, a, I'm married as well. My wife is the long-suffering wife is Dolores, and we raised four children together, and uh, three of them were educated in the school, three of the or girls as well. So uh, it's a great pleasure actually to be here um, back in the, in the school again after a few years. Um, would history have been your favourite subject in school? Uh, I suppose it would, and probably Irish as well. Um, I, I had one particular um, teacher in National School, Crowhur O'Rourke, he's long since dead, and uh, he was a great historian and also a great Gael Gore as well, so um, he, he had a bit of a, an influence on me uh, growing up. And then, of course, I was also um, influenced by an uncle of mine called Pat O'Leary, my mother's oldest brother, who lived in the, in the mill where my mother grew up in Castleview, and he was a great local historian and a great storyteller as well, so I used to love listening to his stories uh, growing up. Uh, could you explain to us your family's role in the War of Independence? Well, um, I suppose, um, first of all, my, my grandfather and his brother were active with the local volunteers here in, in 1916 during the rebellion. And they ended up marching on Easter Sunday 1916 to Inchigila to pick up some of the casement rifles, which of course didn't, uh, didn't uh, arrive. Uh, they were arrested then with uh, about nine other of their company um, within the following 10 days or so. And they ended up in a number of prisons in 1916. And my grandfather and his brother later ended up in loft number three in uh, Frangach internment camp in northern Wales with, among others, Michael Collins. Now, of course, um, my, grandfa- my, gra- my grandfather, then Tim Crowley, who was interned with Michael Collins in 1916, he ended up um, marrying my grandmother afterwards, Elizabeth Sline. She was from a place called Art Kit near Inneskeen, and she was a straight third cousin of Michael Collins. Um, her mother and Michael Collins' mother were second cousins. And um, Elizabeth's um, mother, my great-grandmother, Marianne, actually wrote a journal which we only discovered there about uh, seven or eight years ago. And she started writing down lists of births, marriages and deaths going back well into the 1800s. And in the lists of neighbours and relations, there and there you find the Collinses. But of course, they weren't famous when she was writing. They were just her cousins. So Michael Collins' father and mother's wedding is recorded. And when Michael's mother died in 1907, that's in there. And the last entry in the journal by date is actually um, uh, just a few lines recording the death of Michael Collins in 1922. So we, we'd never knew that existed there until, until a few years ago. And I suppose as we're talking a girls' school today, it's important to mention... Um, Three of my grand-aunts, they were um, Ellen, Mary and Margaret Collins. They were heavily involved with the Cumann Man here locally during the War of Independence. And actually Margaret was the local um, secretary of the Cumann Man down here in Clonakilty. So she and her comrades just walk up the streets down there um, wearing the West Cork hooded cloaks and underneath the revolvers inside in special pockets and also the, the rifles broken up into their component parts. And you could imagine the scene below in the town, uh, two women wearing the hooded cloaks walking up the street and two members of the RIC walking in the opposite direction. And the RIC men might tip their caps and say, good afternoon, ladies. And they wouldn't have realised the walking arsenal had just passed them by. But of course, the women's role of 100 years ago, in, in the events of 100 years ago, was kind of forgotten until about 10 years ago or so there, when the Commandment pension files were released by the military archives. And what the women did 100 years ago, they were basically half the reason the whole thing succeeded. Uh, but it's only recently they've been given the, the credit for what they did. So what inspired you to like set up the Michael Collins Centre? 
Well, I, I suppose I, I just have a huge interest in history, obviously. And then when you start reading history books, and I, uh, my Uncle Pat that I spoke about, he was born in 1920. And when he was growing up in the late 1920s and early 1930s, the events of the War of Independence around here were still very fresh. And when he was telling me those stories, for me, they were very fresh as well. So um, I took a huge interest in the War of Independence and Civil War period because of, of listening to his stories. And when you start studying um, the War of Independence, then I'd have probably 1,500 books in my own library at home connected with all of this period and other aspects of history as well. But when you start reading the books, well, one character kind of jumps out at you, and that's Michael Collins. And he seemed to be um, uh, the real deal, if you like. He he was uh, the complete package in many ways. He was uh, uh, very intelligent, hugely patriotic, very uh, ruthless when he needed to, great human sides as well, good-looking as well. Of course, the ladies were mad about him. And um, he, he just seemed to, to tick so many boxes. And uh, a lot of uh, characters in history, sometimes when you start looking into them in depth, you find what they did wasn't uh, what they were supposed to have done. They didn't actually do a lot of it. But in Collins's case, most of what they said he did, he did. And when you see characters, we say like Tom Barry in 1965, coming to unveil Michael Collins' memorial over there at Sam's Cross. And remember, Barry took the opposite side during the Civil War to Michael Collins. But he was prepared to come to unveil that monument all those years later and stood over there on Sam's Cross on that day and gave a speech giving Michael Collins full credit for what he had done during the War of Independence, even though Barry didn't agree with him signing the treaty. And you have people like Dan Breen up in Tipperary, another great IRA man, and of course he also took the opposite side to Michael Collins. And he was interviewed in the 1960s by the BBC. And the, um, the interviewer asked him, what did you think of Michael Collins? And uh, Breen said, I love that man, he said, like one soldier loves another. And if he asked me to, I'd have followed him through the gates of hell. And again, this was from a man who didn't agree with Khan signing the treaty, but had huge respect for him anyway, you know. <clears throat> was it difficult to find all the artefacts? Um, I suppose um, when we started off in 2000, which is uh, almost 23 years ago now, setting up the museum, we were using a lot of copies, photocopies of material and so on. But gradually then, when people saw what we were doing, they started loaning us um, artefacts. And then I started buying artefacts in boot sales and then from um, auctions and different bits and pieces. And it's a bit like a snowball going down the hill when it starts off very small, but then gradually it starts getting bigger and bigger. And we've come to the stage now where we haven't enough room for, for our collection that we have to keep sort of, um, you know, moving it around, putting in different bits and pieces at different times of the year and so on. Now, there are a couple of uh, very important items that we have that are on, are on permanent display. Um, we have Michael Collins' uh, briefcase that he had in London, for example. And also we have the, uh, a shaving mirror that he was given as a gift in, in 1921 when he was heading off to negotiate with the British. And we have a sister, Helena, who she was a nun with her candlestick with their father's name inscribed on it and all of that. So there would be probably about a dozen items that are on permanent display, but the, uh, the lot of other items, then we have to keep rotating them, uh, which, which is a good thing. What would your favourite artefact be? I suppose I have to say the, um, the, the, the briefcase that we have, 
because um, we have uh, we have the briefcase in our collection, and at the moment I'm putting together a Facebook film uh, giving the history of the of the briefcase. But uh, we've about maybe six or seven photographs of Michael Collins actually with that case in his hand over in London, and also in Dublin during the treaty negotiations and, and subsequently the, the treaty debates. And we can only imagine what important documents were held inside in that case a hundred years ago, and maybe the had revolver pistol as well. No, Mr. Collins, who knows? And then the the, the mirror the travel mirror that was belonged to him um, when you look into that as your reflection well Michael Collins would have seen his own reflection looking back at, at him from that mirror a hundred years ago as well so that's pretty cool and um, Michael Collins was a, a bit of a stickler as far as his appearance was concerned so he would have he would have definitely used that mirror a fair bit um, at that time. Uh, what sites from this period of time would you recommend around West Cork? Well I suppose um, it depends, I suppose, on people's levels of interest. Um, most people are familiar with Bay on the Blaw and um, Kilmoitel, um, but there are so many other sites around as well. You have Cross Barry and you have Bandon and you have Upton, uh, uh, where, the, where the famous um, where the, the terrible ambush took place in, in 1921, where the IRA went um, to ambush a train one morning. They were expecting about a dozen British troops on board. But of course, an informer had told the British authorities of the planned ambush and they trapped, they'd stopped the train at the previous railway station and put another um, 70 or 80 British troops on the train and they mixed in with the passengers and the other carriages. So when the train pulled into Upton Station that morning, um, the IRA opened fire, but was, they got the surprise because they didn't expect what was coming. Um, and the end result of all of that was there was about a dozen civilians, uh, three IRA and possibly, um, we're not sure, half a dozen British troops killed. And if you go to that site today, it, it, there's actually a, a depot there for a truck company and there's just a, a little memorial but nothing to tell you what, what went down there and all, the, all these people were killed. But there's so many sites around West Cork. Uh, um, I do a lot of private tours, Michael Collins tours and World of Independence tours and um, the Michael Collins tour is a half a day and the World of Independence tour is a full day of touring. But I could do a tour lasting a week and we still wouldn't have it all covered. And uh, I have a huge interest in military history and I think we should do an awful lot more to kind of... Um, promote uh, that history in West Cork and, you know, provide proper information boards and, and all of that for visitors to, to, to appreciate what happened around here. Uh, where would you go for the sites around the War of Independence? Um, well, I suppose uh, Kilmichael um, would be one, um, where Tom Barry's flying column annihilated the two lorries of auxiliaries in, in November 1920. And uh, in fairness, um, a local committee there have that uh, site landscaped with some plenty of information boards and so on there. Um, then you have, um, I suppose, Cross Barry. You have the memorial there. That was a huge battle in, in 1921 as well, where 104 IRA in Tom Barry's flying column got the better of over possibly up to 1,000 British troops. And then you have Upton that we spoke about there earlier. And uh, then there's um, here in, in near Timaligi of Ahuada ambush sites where in 1920 uh, an IRA ambush party under the command of the famous Charlie Hurley, um, they, they shot three um, uh, policemen. And uh, you've just all these, uh, you even go down to Tlanakilty there. I, I've recently there on the anniversary of the truce, I actually did a walking tour of the town and went around to places like um, Rasa Street where there was a policeman shot by the IRA in, in 1920 and he later died. His name was Constable Murray. And then where you've Conan Moore is... Um um, pub up uh, McCurtain Hill uh, in 1921 um, two IRM and threw a hand grenade into that pub and it resulted in the death of a black and tan and an RIC constable 
and then go up here in front of the police barracks and, and or the Garda barracks and, and there was a district inspector um, uh, called Keeney shot there in 1922. So even in the town of Clonakilty, there's so much to, to history there. The centenary of the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty is coming up on the 6th of December. Can you give us some background on this treaty and why it came about? Well, I suppose you know the um, the War of Independence itself began in 1919 and then it went on until the uh, July of 1921 when a truce came into effect uh, and, and the, the, war, the negotiations began then between the Irish and, and the British uh, leaders. Uh, so initially... Eamon de Valera, who was the president of the Irish Parliament, the Dáil, he went off to London to negotiate with the British with some other Irish delegates in July of 1921. And um, the real talks then, it was decided, would begin the following October of 1921. But on the second occasion, Eamon de Valera refused to go. He said he was the president of the Dáil and he would remain at home in Dublin in reserve with his people. So he went to Michael Collins and asked Michael Collins if he would go. No, Michael Collins hadn't gone on the first occasion. But uh, Collins initially didn't want to go to London to negotiate. He felt he was a soldier, not a politician. But in the end, he was persuaded by his friends that it was his duty. So he went off to London in October of 1921 with Arthur Griffith and the others negotiating with the British. Now, those negotiations ended then in the early hours of the 6th of December 1921 when the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed. And um, uh, that uh, night, of course, Michael Collins afterwards famously said that he had just signed his death warrant because he knew a lot of his friends in the IRA and Sinn Féin back in Ireland were not going to be happy with the deal. Now, the bones of the treaty were that basically the, the 26 counties of the south of Ireland would now become the Irish Free State with its own armed forces and parliament in Dublin. The British would retain control over the six counties in the northeastern corner. That would be Northern Ireland. That, of course, would have its own parliament in Belfast. The British would also keep a number of ports along the south coast uh, for the use of their navy. And uh, the British also insisted on the Irish TDs going to the Dáil in Dublin, having to swear an oath of allegiance on the British Crown. And it was that oath actually more than the partition issue that when the treaty was brought back to Dublin for what turned out to be very bitter treaty debates in the Dáil, it was the oath caused the big split more so than the, the, the actual partition issue. Now, Michael Collins had great hopes um, for the Boundary Commission which was to look into the position of the northern border afterwards. And when that body would meet, um, Collins was hoping that under his pressure, parts of Armagh, Fermanagh, Tyrone and Derry, nationalist areas of the north, would come into the Free State, the border would be pushed further north, and what would be left up in the northeast would not survive as an entity in the medium to long term. But of course, Michael Collins was shot not too long afterwards, and when the Boundary Commission met, it more or less rubber-stamped the position of the border as it had already been agreed, and that's the position we still have it in today. If Collins had lived on, we can only speculate, would that have turned out a bit differently? Uh, would you have been pro-treaty or anti-treaty, and why? Well, I, I think, to be honest, Michael Collins and the others uh, that, that time had no choice but to sign the treaty. Um, now, we know that Collins wasn't happy signing it. He said this is not the final solution. It's a stepping stone. It gives the Irish the freedom to achieve freedom. That's what he said about the treaty. So in his mind, it wasn't the end. It was, it was only the beginning. And again, we can only speculate if he'd lived on what, what he might have done with, with, with the treaty. Now, I would have 
I, I wouldn't be a huge fan of Eamon de Valera, to be honest with you, but I would have a lot of respect for, we'll say, the ordinary um, rank-and-file IRA men and, and, and members of the Command of Man as well who took the anti-treaty side. Um, most of them were patriots, and they were fighting in their heads for Ireland. And um, it's a sad fact, uh, I think some um, academic there in America about 20 years ago did some research and uh, with all the revolutions that happened around the world from about 1890 to 1980, something like 70% of them later led on to civil war. Uh, so we're not unique in this country. And in, as tragic as our civil war was, to be honest, it was like a tea party compared to, we said, the Spanish civil war or the American civil war, but or, or civil war afterwards. Um, uh, it cast a huge shadow on politics, especially in this country, almost right up to the present day. And we've only recently, and you've seen it, girls, in your lifetime, a coalition between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, who were on opposite sides uh, politically uh, at the time of the Civil War. And, and that was a momentous um, occasion there when that happened last year. But it kind of was brushed under the cap because of COVID and all of that. But uh, as a historian, I, I thought that was remarkable to, to witness that. But I would always say to people who would say to me, they should never have signed the treaty. Well, I would say, what was the realistic alternative? And at the time, I think there was no realistic alternative. How do you believe history would have been altered if Michael Collins had not been assassinated? Well, first of all, <laughs> the, the term assassination uh, always kind of um, is interesting as far as I'm concerned, because I, I, I don't believe the way it turned out that Michael Collins was assassinated. Now, an assassination is a, a planned killing for a political or religious reason or whatever. I think as it turned out at Bayan Leblanc, whatever the aim of the ambush party was, we're not too sure of that. The way it turned out, Michael Collins died in action. He was a soldier with a rifle in his hand, firing a weapon when he was shot by another soldier. So, so I like to use the term that Michael Collins died in action rather than he was assassinated. But you always hear that term being used, the assassination of Michael Collins. And to, to answer your question, I suppose there's two parts of our history in particular that might have turned out a bit different if he'd lived on. First of all, um, the North. Uh, as we were discussing there earlier, I think if Collins had lived on, he would have used the Boundary Commission as much as possible to reduce the size of the northern state, making what was left kind of unviable. And um, who knows, he might have used sort of um, undercover military means as well to destabilise that part of the country. He may, he may not have succeeded in, in, in bringing about a united Ireland, who knows. But I, I think the evidence would suggest he had a huge interest in the, in the northern um, situation. And at the very least, he wouldn't have allowed the Northern Nationalist to be um, used or to be turned into second-class citizens, to put it mildly, as what happened in the decades after uh, our independence down here. Uh, visitors from the North, I mean, a lot, meet a lot of them during the summer up in the museum, and one or two of them over the years have said to me, we have paid for your freedom. We, we, we've paid for it up in the north for your freedom down here. And it's very hard to kind of argue against that kind of a, kind of a statement because you could, you could say they did. Now, the other part of our history, which could have been a lot different if Michael Collins lived on as well, uh, would be the, the economic um, uh, history of our country. For decades after our independence, our country down here stagnated and you had people immigrating in their tens of thousands every year, uh, going well right up until quite recently. Michael Collins, we know from his own writings, had a tremendous grasp of economics. And uh, there's a book called The Path to Freedom, which is a collection of his writings. And if you read that, there's one chapter dealing with his ideas about developing the Irish economy. And uh, the fact he died so young, I think, robbed us of those incredible ideas and that, that grasp that he had of economics. And you know, I, I think our country would have prospered economically a lot earlier if Michael Collins had lived on. 
Who do you believe killed Michael Collins and why? Well, there's all sorts of theories um, uh, being put forward since uh, with a hundred years since Michael Collins was killed about who shot him uh, over at Bayern Le Blanc. Some people say that um, it was an accident. I'd some, I sometimes call that the Irish solution to an Irish problem, that, that a ricochet bullet struck the roof of the armoured car or a rock on the road and hit Michael Collins in the back of the head and in that situation, well then, nobody could be blamed for it. Uh, other people put forward theories and I've seen this in the Irish Times quite recently there again that Michael Collins was shot by one of his own men that one of his own officers was a double agent working for the British and Michael Collins stepped out onto the open road that day with his rifle and this uh, one of his own men came behind him and shot him in the back of the head with a revolver or a pistol and that's quite a common theory now from my point of view I'm 99% certain in my own head uh, that a man called Dennis O'Neill or Sonny O'Neill shot Michael Collins at Bern and you know, the whole civil war situation is so sad because, as we mentioned, you ended up brothers and sisters fighting on opposite sides. Now, Dennis O'Neill came from a very strong Republican family from near Timberlake. And that family, the O'Neills, done so much fighting the British during the War of Independence. But both the men and the women in the family, there's about six or seven of them involved in the whole thing. And one of them, Michael O'Neill, then ended up being killed during the truce period in, under controversial circumstances inside near Bandon. Now, Dennis O'Neill was an, a former British uh, uh, soldier from World War One. He had been um, a, a trained sniper. And um, uh, I believe at Bayern Le Blanc, Dennis O'Neill, we know from his own IRA pension file, when he was applying for an IRA pension in the 1930s, in his own hand in that, he mentions he was part of the ambush party at Bayern Le Blanc. The only other thing he says is that he remained there until late. But... I've become very good friends there over the last five or six years with a historian from Neen and County Tipperary called John Flannery. And a few months after Bern Le Blanc, Dennis O'Neill left West Cork and he actually settled in Nina in Tipperary, where he's actually buried. So what we believe happened at Bern Le Blanc was when the ambush was called off that evening, Dennis O'Neill left the scene when most of the IRA went down to the pub. He didn't go down to the pub at Bern Le Blanc. He went into a neighbouring farmhouse for food. And he was in there with another IRA man for about half an hour when the Collins convoy drove in and the shooting started. And O'Neill grabbed his rifle and ran out of what we call Foley's Lane and took up a position after Michael Collins had left. Now, he was 400 yards away from Michael Collins. So he didn't know who it was. But what Dennis O'Neill was looking at was this soldier standing on the road shooting at O'Neill's comrades who were trying to escape up the middle lane, Long's Lane, at Bayern Le Blanc. And basically O'Neill, as a, a trained sniper, his role was quite simple at that stage. Take out that officer or that figure to protect his men. And that's what he did, uh, I believe. But he wouldn't have had a clue who he was shooting at at the time. And uh, it would, would he have regretted it afterwards? I think he would. And there is evidence to suggest that he did. And if he did back over again, would he have continued taking the shot? Well, we can't ever answer that question. So uh, I look on Dennis O'Neill as a soldier um, who was doing his duty on that night. And um, there's, he didn't know, we believe it was Michael Collins. It is, the evidence would suggest it was two hours before the anti-treaty IRA at Bernal Blah that evening discovered that Michael Collins had been killed at the scene. So that, that's what I think happened. Was there an autopsy performed on Michael Collins after his death? Uh, there, there would have been, yeah. Um, now, he was examined, his body, uh, above in Shanakil Hospital afterwards, but then um, a, a, a doctor called Gorgerty above in Dublin did um, uh, the embalming and also carried out an autopsy on Michael Collins. That report uh, is, is not in the public realm. 
uh, there is a lot of things connected to the death of Michael Collins, which lends the whole thing to a lot of conspiracy theories. Um, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that Michael Collins' own men at Bernal Blah were totally kind of ashamed and, and uh, d- distraught because of what happened. Because basically their job that day was protecting the commander-in-chief and for a whole lot of different reasons he ended up being shot dead while, while they were supposed to be protecting him. And then the anti-treaty side that um, evening at Bernal Blah uh, regretted hugely most of them the death of Michael Collins. And they didn't realise that at the time but the fact that Michael Collins died that day would lead to the, the government that took over after him uh, hammering the anti-treaty side an awful lot more if, 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 than would have happened if Michael Collins had lived on. So there, there's... A, and remember, the, the, the army that Collins had founded just weeks before his own death, the, what we look on today as normal standard procedures like autopsies and publishing the reports and so on, all those kind of procedures wouldn't have been in place. And we're talking about 100 years ago as well. Uh, like today, the likes of Michael Collins would not be driving around in a war zone in an open motor car in the back seat painted yellow without uh, armoured protection and all the rest of it. So sometimes we have to be careful not to apply modern standards in a whole lot of areas back to what happened 100 years ago. Times were completely different. Thank you so much for coming in. We really enjoyed it. It's my pleasure and thank you for your interest.